2: I don't learn from my mistakes that's one of the hallmarks of being paula poundstone Mm -hmm. i do not learn from my mistakes
0: hello
3: and welcome to good one a podcast about jokes i'm your host jesse david fox this week's guest is paula poundstone I first started trying to book Paula like about a year and a half ago after Moshe Kasher came on. He he was promoting his Crowdwork album, and when he was talking about the people that inspired him, he kept on pointing to Paula Poundstone. And I had a vague memory of seeing this in her specials growing up, but after what Moshe said, I rewatched Paula's seminal 1990 HBO special Cats, Cops, and Stuff, and wow it it really is like nothing i had seen before like including specials that have come out since including specials that are explicitly about crowd work the the way she's sort of just doing material and then she calls on a guy in the audience and then like talks to someone completely in a different place in the audience and then will call back things she said about one conversation and everyone in the audience is like up to speed and like very much in the room It, it is it is so rare for a special to be able to capture what it's like to actually be in the audience, and something about how Paula was able to do these, you actually got that. As Paula and I discuss, it's a style she cultivated early. After barely in her 20s, she moved from the aggro Boston comedy scene to the more artistically supportive San Francisco around the turn of the 1980s. And it's still the style she performs in today, as she's back doing live gigs, including Town Hall in New York on October 7th, Go to paulapoundstone.com slash tour. So before the interview, I, I want to play a clip from Cats, Cops, and Stuff that showcases all of this. It is an incredible piece of stand-up comedy. It's an incredible display of the powers of the stand-up comedian. Uh, it's even more incredible that this was recorded at a special taping in 1990. You'll see what I mean. So here is Paula Poundstone. <laughs>
2: Sorry, I just noticed that your tie is kind of, part of your tie is like this and part of it's like that. Did you do that on purpose? Is it hot in here, are you hot? Well, you could loosen your tie a little bit. Once you've already gone like that, you may as well loosen it, for Christ's sakes. I'm wearing my tie kind of loose tonight because I wanted that Darren Stevens, I'm home, money look. Do you live in a suburb of San Francisco? I live in the East Bay. You live in the East Bay? Mm-hmm. Where exactly? Where in the East Bay do you live? In Berkeley. In Berkeley? Mm-hmm. Well, what do you do for a living?
3: I work in San Francisco at a law firm.
2: You work in San Francisco at a law firm? I'll handle this, ma'am. <laughs> Have you had a bad lawyer experience? You could say that. You could say that? I mean you could say that. I did say that. Very well, I might add. What, what bad law experience did you have? Somebody didn't take care of a personal injury. Somebody didn't take care of a personal injury? What, what personal injury? Like you were at a grocery store and you slipped or something?
0: Actually, it was my mother.
2: It was your mother? Yeah. Your mother hurt you? <laughs> and then you sued her? I didn't even realize you could do that. That's incredible. Like an idiot, I'd just been going to a shrink. I see now that actually bringing legal action would feel better. <laughs> no, somebody hurt your mother and then they didn't take care of the personal injury lawsuit? Right. Your mother was, in, your mother was she injured fell in, and- She
0: fell in a gas station and- Your mother
2: was, fell in a gas station? And she
0: was hurt very she badly. She her own?
2: <laughs> I don't, I've never liked self-serve. That's exactly why. Because so many people's mothers can be hurt there. Is she okay now? she's okay but she's okay you mean not great right what you want her better than before (laughs) what happened she was in a gas station what happened she chipped and fell over a jack handle and it tore her face open on a lube rack (laughs) (laughs) tore her face open on a lube rack she's had two plastic surgeries and it's not fixed ma'am bum everybody out (laughs) i can't believe you're telling a story like that Well, you could have just lied. (laughs) Jesus. I don't even feel like being here anymore. (laughs) Tore her face open on a lube rack. (laughs) Ma'am, you could say she was in the bathroom and she was using that towel that turns around and just sprained a wrist or something. (laughs) Tore her face open on a lube rack. If my mother tore her face open on a lubric, I sure as hell wouldn't go telling it to people. Yeah. Don't they have a sign right there at the gas station, ma'am, right there that says that you're not allowed to be beyond a certain line no. when on account of the insurance? No, that's why we're suing them. That's why you're suing them, because they didn't have that? Yeah. So your mom put her face real close to a lubric? <laughs> ma'am, I don't think you have a leg to stand on. Where's the lawyer? You ever have one of these lubrack things happen? I'm not sure that many of us can relate to this story, ma'am. A lot of us have had uncles that tore their face open on a lubrack, but not so much your mom. Has you ever handled that kind of thing? Oh, I'm not an attorney. (laughs) Didn't you just tell us he was an attorney a little Oh, he insinuated. Oh, he, worked. he did insinuate. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Your Honor, I believe the defendant insinuated. There was absolute insinuation there. Boy, thank goodness you are here, sir. That insinuation nearly slipped by. What do you do with the law firm? I'm a lackey. <laughs> You're a lackey? What does that mean? Go for a runner, that kind of thing? That kind of thing. So you don't even handle the Lubrak accidents? <laughs> Why did your mom go to him for help? Ma'am, <laughs> and completely masqueraded as a Lubrak lawyer. I'm in a state of shock right now. And frankly, I'm so grossed out by the description of that. (laughs) One time I was uh, working in a nightclub and there was a guy right down here who was a, uh, he was a plastic surgeon and he said he had two kids. I thought, boy, that would make the daddy's gut your nose game a little scarier, wouldn't it? (laughs) Kinda makes that lubrack thing not seem scary at all, huh? (laughs) I'm never even pumping my own gas again. I'm telling you, I'm not even sitting in the car when it goes through the car wash. You guys, let's get out of here right now. Let's, I don't know, all of us though, somewhere, 7-Eleven. Act like it's a complete coincidence, they are just having a rush. We don't even know each other, we're just looking at some frozen foods. And one at a time, each go up and buy a Slim Jim. (laughs) It would really screw up their inventory. (laughs) Next week, on like Friday night, big old truckload of Slim Jims will be coming in. We better get ready, they were in here last week. (laughs) And you just got $5 laying out on the table there? What's that, just to kind of taunt people? You know, I thought people were specifically told not to leave here. And this woman. What was that woman's name that was sitting there? Kara? Kara. 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 Mm-hmm. Now what, she probably wasn't even here when we talked about the Lubrak accident, and now she won't know how to be careful of that sort of thing. Do we have any college students here? Yeah? Um what college?
1: San Francisco
2: State. San Francisco State? Right here in San Francisco? I didn't even realize. What are you studying? Creative writing. Do you, do you have any idea what you want to do? I, I want to be a comedian. You want to be a comedian? <laughs> I want to write your jokes. Ma'am, can you see that I write my jokes? <laughs> I don't know, many of you are thinking right now, what jokes?
4: <laughs>
2: That's really what you want to do is be a comic? No. No? no it was a second ago but you've had a change of heart i'm so glad we talked you down from that one now how old are you uh 22 22 isn't that the cutest little thing you ever did here so you're not really sure what you want to do um i you know i just want to be creative and have someone pay
1: me for it just be creative and have someone pay you for
2: it yeah Yeah, i believe we have an opening in that (laughs) well miss simmons you'll fit right in here Well, actually, you know what? You probably think you're not really sure because you're 22, but watch this. How many people here know what you want to do for a living? Isn't that remarkable? That's why adults are always asking little, little kids what they want to be when they grow up. Cause they're looking for ideas.
4: I don't know what I
2: want to be. I know what I want to be. I, I, well... <laughs> Apparently there are special rules for Kara this evening. <laughs> uh, Kara, uh, and I assume that your last name is come and go as you damn well, please. <laughs> Kara, special. Um, Kara. When you're at a gas station, do you know what to be careful of? What a lovely face you have. happens to it If it does, I believe I have an attorney for you.
3: I am here with Paula Pounce, and thank you so much for joining me.
2: My pleasure, thanks for having me
3: So uh, I want to start with the basics what What does writing material mean to you? How do you do it when you whatever you call writing, what does it look like?
2: Um, well i have <laughs> there's a uh, I have inklings ideas. I think there's another category of, you know, piece of material. Uh, some writing to me is, uh, walking the dogs or sifting litter boxes, perhaps Mm -hmm. vacuuming, uh, in the old days, uh, scrubbing the kitchen floor on my hands and knees, which I really don't do so much anymore, but that's where, that's Mm -hmm. where I get like an inkling or an idea. And, uh, I carry, uh, I know that, uh, Because you and I are on Zoom so we can see each other, so I shall now demonstrate. I carry a pen, just Mm -hmm. fell off, Uh, clipped to my pants all the time, and uh, a little notebook in my back pocket. Um, Because, uh, you know, you think of something, I, 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 I jot it down. Yeah. And I no longer, there was a time when I wrote things out in a more thorough way. Um, and for better or worse, I don't really do that anymore. Um, but I do put that idea in my in the folder that I carry around to my jobs. And before <laughs> I go on stage, you know, I look at. I try to make some sort of a list of stuff that I wanted mm. to, you know, that I wanted to make sure that I did that night. Um, and by the way, if I write a list of say five things that I wanted to make sure that I did that night, it's possible I'll do none. Um, it's probably uh more likely that I'll do one or two,
3: yeah, yeah. So you mentioned that you you'll have just a folder of I things that you have, and then you you know, you do your shows, and your shows for those who don't know are these two hour fairs. There's no openers, they're sort of freewheeling. You're often talking to the audience why have material at all like why at this point why look at the notebook at this you do why don't you just go out and just see what's going on like what do you use the material for
2: um well i do use material when i'm talking to audience members i do the time honored where you from what do you do for a living and um in this way little biographies of audience members often emerge Uh, And they say things to me sometimes on a topic where maybe I do have a piece of material. And so I'll throw that out, um, uh, you know, just as often or maybe even more frequently. Um, They say something uh, for which I I have, you know, nothing in my back pocket, but uh, it generates a conversation that's unique just to that night. And I'll never, you know, never. I can't remember things well enough to to uh, repeat them. You know, when I was starting out, I had these managers a long time ago that used to encourage me to, uh, and this was a thing among comics back then, too, which is we had these clunky um, tape recorders with Mm -hmm. a cassette tape. And so my manager would tell me, you know, put your your tape recorder like behind the curtain or something, right, and tape Mm. your set and then listen to it because they would say like all this material is going away because you don't you know because you're not capturing it anymore and so i had a couple of problems with that number 1 if i remembered to put the tape recorder down the odds of me remembering to push the button were just that's a lot of i that's not going to happen um so most of the time i simply didn't tape even though i intended to but the other thing was then one was required to sit and listen mm. to your own set which I mean, I know people, I've actually encountered comics before, not a lot, and I'm not going to use names because it's just too gross, but I've actually encountered a comic before that had his a headset, and this is a long time ago when, you know, when you could record like that, um, he had like a headset in, uh, on and I was walking by him and he goes, oh, listen to this, and he takes the headset off for me to listen to what he was listening to and it was his own set and i was i didn't even know how to address that i was just like oh oh isn't that that oh very good it's oh so when i would ha- when i would listen to my own set yeah. i generally i would do it late at night anyways but it almost always made me pass out
3: other than the stuff that comes of the moment you it seems like from listening to a lot of your albums and your specials jokes will fly in and out depending on what People say, if you right could and it and if I asked you right now to remember a joke, you probably couldn't, but if I said something that was similar to a joke, it probably spur it,
2: I mean, possibly I mean see if you asked me to remember it, I would fump for around for a long time, like the way your mother used to tell stories, you know, no yeah. it was Wednesday, no it was Tuesday, no it was my father who said it. um, I do a lot of that, um, but yeah, you know there's a thing too about. There's an odd little psychology word for it, which I'm going to forget right now. Flow. Mm. There's a thing called flow, um, which is what we used to refer to as sort of being in the zone. And one can achieve flow. uh, I mean, I don't think I've ever had a a stronger uh, uh, feeling of flow than when I used to bust tables um yeah. there or, or or even sometimes you know getting organized in my house or packing or something uh, you can achieve flow in all sorts of ways but i think a lot of performers would tell you that something of that ilk occurs um when they're on stage and so i can remember things i can reach for things i can do things you know people are always saying to me like How did you remember that that a guy over on the left side of the audience in the way back had said blah, blah, blah? Um, And I don't have an answer for that question because the truth is, if you then say to me, you know, now the show's over and I'm walking back to the dressing room and there's three rooms in the hallway, which room is my stuff in? I have no idea.
3: It's a state that you... Are able to tap into it, it's, it's. I honestly wrote down the word flow. I was preparing to ask you about it. So it. Oh, isn't that funny? Well, it feels like from watching you, it's that you know. I talk to comedians that do different versions of improvising, right? They either improvise music, or they they're improv comedians, or they do kind of what you do, where it's talking to the audience a lot, and uh, and I'll ask what it feels like for you, but it always feels like a version of both being very present. Where you're very much with the person, but also yep. not present. Where you're not thinking. Is that how you describe it? I th-
2: I think it is. I think it is like uh, my uh, my my partner on my podcast, uh, which is nobody listens to Paula Poundstone. Paul um, Adam Felber is, is my partner on there, and we were we were talking to a woman who uh, is I, I forget what the. Lexographer, is that it? Uh, writes a dictionary, it's mm-hmm. part of dictionary writing. And somewhere in the conversation, we came up with the word uh, trying to describe this
1: mm-hmm.
2: brain rection, uh, which is a, 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 a crasser way, I think, mm-hmm. of saying it's something like flow. And, uh, but it, it is kind of that because, it, as I say, minutes later, you know, when I'm not in that setting, the minute I step off the stage, I literally, here's an example. Now I am very directionally challenged, but nonetheless, a lot of times at the end of the show, you know how you sometimes wonder, like when when the, when the performer's not at the microphone anymore, but you can see their lips moving and you kind of wonder, like, what are they saying? Well, you know, mm-hmm. what are they, oh, they're talking to that person in the front row, what are they saying? A lot of times at the end of the show, I can't remember which side of the stage I came on from. Mm-hmm. And so I'll have to lean down to somebody in the front row and go, which way did I come on? And uh, sometimes they even um, I've I've asked for it like in my contract. It's sort of my green M&Ms, I guess. Um, I've actually asked for them to put a taped arrow on the way I came on, because I just think it's such a sort of crest falling way to end the show where I walk to one side of the stage and then it turns out there's like a wall there and I have to walk back to the other side. It just doesn't look good, I don't mm-hmm. think. Um, and yet in those two hours, hour and a half, whatever, I, I, I can pull stuff out of my hat pretty good sometimes.
3: Um, I want to talk to you more about your relationship To your audience, which I think is a very special thing, and and how you talk to your audience—it's
2: really—it's the only relationship I have.
3: (laughs) That's specifically (laughs) what I want to talk to you. But
2: when I heard you say the word relationship, I was like, uh oh, uh oh, and oh, thank you to the audience. Don't worry, it's them. Thank you.
3: So I want to back up a little bit and talk about sort of how your audience formed and how you found your people. And I want to start from the very beginning. You started in Boston, I believe, nineteen seventy nine. You're 19. So before you set out on a journey that you eventually landed in in San Francisco, can you talk about what the crowds were like in Boston? What was it like for you there? How did you feel being a part of Boston, the Boston comedy scene when you were first started?
2: Um, The crowds in Boston were, for the most part, in the beginning, they were the friends and supporters of a couple of the boston comics um guys who had grown up in cambridge uh and there was therefore a style of comedy that was very popular it was misogynistic it was you know looking back uh, you know the things that were said wouldn't go over now mm-hmm. and yeah. uh um but it was raucous it was Drug and alcohol driven a lot of times. It was it was kind of wild, um, and a lot of comics working then that were that were just starting out. And how these other guys had any experience at all, I really don't know. It's like trying to figure out you know who first drank from a cow's udder.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: I I don't I don't know where they the, the handful of guys that were working in Boston when I started. I I don't know what their past experience had been that made them even that able um, because they were, you know, they were very successful in that setting. Um, But anybody who wasn't that either died an ugly death. And I, I will say with one or two exceptions, either died an ugly death on stage or was influenced in that direction mm-hmm. in order to stay afloat. And it's kind of the good news and the bad news. It's not the same there now, but those originally, you know, it was the dirty dozen, the guys who started out there. Um, and, I, and I think for a variety of reasons, um, I often died an ugly death. Uh-huh. Uh, and some of it was because I wasn't really, you know, a part of the crowd. Um and some of it was because I wasn't very skilled. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and then you know when I when the when the idea that there were clubs in other cities came to me, and, and I didn't even have any idea of that in the beginning. I thought it was just a Boston thing. Uh, when the idea that there were other places to go came to me, I thought, I oh, gee, I wonder how I would do in a different setting.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, and the answer is, you know. It was
1: easier,
3: yeah, so you, and, so, Plus, and you it's, yeah. it's
2: like moving away from your family anyways because it's just plain always easier to present yourself to the, the to another comedy community another audience that hasn't seen you bomb
3: yeah yeah <laughs> so you you left Boston it you it seemed like you were then like we're testing out different cities in a little bit like you're going around what were you looking for like what were you You knew there had to be something different do you have a sense of what you're hoping to find and then what did san francisco represent when you found it
2: um i just wanted to see if i would be if i just that idea that if i if i'm presenting myself in a place where no one's really seen how bad i suck um you know will they, will they view me differently? Will they, you know, will they, I just felt, you know, the, the the baggage of the times that I had not done well was always sort of dragging behind me, like, you know, like cans tied to a just married mm-hmm. car. Um, and so I thought, you know, if I go someplace and they sort of, they don't, they, they, they don't, they never saw me really eat it. Uh, will I, you know, how will I do? And the answer was very, very well. Mm-hmm. Um I mean very is it maybe not very, but well uh, all right I'm going to modify that sure just well and just as I suspected um because one of the things that was frustrating about Boston and I, this has to be the case in in any in any city where someone's an open micer you know uh which is you know it's not a science and so there's going to be there's going to be people that are supported more than other people yeah. And it's like uh it's like trying to fit in in high school. You know, it's it's uh it's cliquish. It just has to be. That's just yeah. human nature. And so I just was never a part of the clique. And um and so I I just knew I wasn't going to get any traction there. So I went to other places. I went to uh took a Greyhound bus around the country. Uh and up into Canada. Um and it's funny I think uh Uh, I I think for a lot of people, I think they had sort of the same idea that maybe like say in Toronto, for example, that, you know, the idea that there were comics in other places maybe surprised them too. Because when I, you know, when I came through and I said, well, you know, I'm from, you know, I'm from the, you know, Boston area and I I just wanted to see if I could do a set, you know, and then I went on and did pretty good. Not, not great, Mm -hmm. but pretty good. I think they were like, what's that? you know where how did that get in here um I, I, then i went to uh when i ended up in san francisco um you know just cuz that's where the bus stopped and i got off uh and i i did have a friend there um and i went on stage at a at a place it was my favorite club ever it was called the other cafe in san francisco on the corner of carl and cole streets it was only there for 6 years um it was. I. I always describe it it, it, it. it was. I. I. I found my people. Yeah. 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 It was such a nice reception. It's like well, part of what was fun about it was that they got. They got the weirder. They they enjoyed the stuff that I enjoyed saying that mm. wasn't really the main punchline. They liked. Mm-hmm. Um, they liked the accessories. <laughs> Enjoyed the presentation. Sure. Uh, whereas, you know, it, it, I, I just felt in most places um, that they didn't even, you know, it's like the difference between a stereotypical guy opening a, a, a gift. That someone has wrapped very carefully, and maybe they've decorated the paper. Maybe they put like you know, just, you know, you, where you you know with the curling ribbon, sure, and yeah. you spent like an hour, a- and you give it to somebody. Maybe you know, and then they just tear it off. They didn't give a shit about it. These guys liked the wrapping, and, and, and you know, you spent hours on that wrapping part. Like, yeah, yeah. oh look, a hammer. Thanks. Um, so yeah, they liked the wrapping, and that was. Uh, that was really appealing to me, and I had no intention of staying there. And the be in, uh, in San Francisco in the beginning, I really was just on a trip, and I was planning on going back to Boston, but I, um, I just stayed. I was yeah. like, boy, I cannot leave
3: this. And so, is the audience, and and what was the. Was the the comedians around there also people that you found yourself getting along yes. with more that also absolutely
2: with yeah? And there's probably a few reasons for that. One might have been that I had a you know a bit more confidence um, as a result of this, you know, sort of welcoming by this um, audience. But the other thing is, you know, who knows which comes first, the chicken or the egg? But the audience is there. uh had a a style of comedy that they also um, Mm -hmm. were attracted to in the same way that the audiences in Boston were attracted to a particular kind of comedy. And um, I think that what went on in San Francisco was sometimes a little bit more experimental. Um, The audiences, well, this was not uncommon, which is that open mic nights were sometimes the biggest night of the week in a club. Mm. Um, you know, Friday, Saturday was when they would have their headliners, but open mic nights, uh, as an audience member, you used to, sometimes there was no cover at all. Um, but if there was, it was like a buck and you could get like, you know, a cheap glass of wine. And this is, this is years prior to the, the drink minimum shit, yeah,
1: yeah, 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 you know,
2: yeah. it's so sad that all that came into, into being because So the audience was often as broke as I was financially, uh, or the other comics too. And what they seemed to enjoy in San Francisco was finding performers that they liked in these open mic nights, being well aware that the comic wasn't very polished, you know, and sort of just you know going with it right just just being a part of that person developing and i feel like it was sort of a i don't know if they did it consciously or that's just the way it worked out but it always felt to me like they were really into getting in on the ground floor yeah. you know i th- i think they all wanted to be people who could say that they saw Bruce Springsteen in a little place in new jersey
3: and it's the way to describe it it feels like you know the barrier between what we think of between comedian audience was just sort of less. Everyone was sort of this, the people in the crowd and the people on stage were basically in the same yeah. community, the same financial situation. So it-
2: Absolutely. Uh, or Lots of us took, you know, public transportation. Uh, so you can make bus jokes. Everybody got what you're talking about. Um, yeah, there were just, you know, uh, I, I remember we used to do a thing about what did I call it? Organic Velcro, which was the mold that kept my shower curtain on the wall. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody knew what that was. And, um, you know, they they knew to, instead of try to fix that, just embrace it.
3: Yeah. Did that facilitate the move to then talk to the audience as a major part of your act?
2: You know, my favorite part of being on stage, which is just plain talking to the audience, uh, there were two things that facilitated that. The first thing was when I started out In Boston, as in San Francisco, open mic nights were hugely popular back then. Big audiences and a long list of comics who wanted to go on. And so the premise of the open mic night was that anybody who wanted to could sign up and go on for five minutes. And the person who had the list was a very powerful person because he would decide who went on when. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was sort of like being in your doctor's waiting room, you know, how you you knew in your head exactly what minute the guy who went on before you, you knew exactly what minute he arrived in the club. You're like, hey, 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 he's... I. I've been here longer than him, but they didn't, they were, you know, they were supposedly sort of programming the evening by deciding who got to go. Mm-hmm. So if you were new to town, if you were just really not very good, um, then you went on at 1.30 in the morning. Yeah. Uh, now, everybody coveted the sort of, you know, somewhere between nine o'clock and 11 o'clock um and you would hear these laughs coming from the crowd and you would say to yourself, "Well, Jesus, I could I could do that." You know, how come I I got to get up between So people were very touchy about this 5 minute thing. Mm-hmm. If you went on a second longer, you could hear knives sharpening in the back. Well, from the very first time I went on on an open mic night in Boston, I had memorized. I used to bust tables for a living, and by the way, I was very good at it. Um, and I, I, would spend the, the, you know, the week before I did my open mic night, I had written, I had typed out my set on the back of um, the obsolete paper uh, placemats from the restaurant, mm-hmm. a- a- and I was, spe- I would spend the whole time I was busting tables memorizing that five minutes. Uh, if you looked carefully, you could see that my lips were moving. And then I would go on stage and out of nervousness forget what I was going to say. And then I was stuck talking to the audience. I had nothing else to do, yeah. so I'd have to say, oh, and And I I was notorious for going over because now I don't know what five minutes is anymore. Mm-hmm. And, oh, my gosh, people would get mad at me. But so in the beginning... That's how it was. And then the, and now that was in both places I did that. But then the other thing that happened, one of the probably the luckiest thing that ever happened to me as a comic was uh, at the wonderful Other Cafe, their open mic nights were Wednesday nights. And they often uh, asked me to host those nights. And so as a host on an open mic night, you might be bringing on like, I don't know, 25 people. And your job is, you know, you open the night, you know, you tell some jokes and you bring up a comic. The comic may be very good or they may really be awful. Mm -hmm. And um, your job is to, you know, keep the audience there, right? Keep them engaged. And as, as a person who only had like five minutes of material, and that was if I could remember it, I, would, I had exhausted the material I had within the, you know, mm-hmm. within the first 30 minutes of the open mic night show. And so after that, I was forced to work the crowd. And I would, I would um, you know, I had a day job back then. I, I, was, a, I, got a, I was a bike messenger for a, for a while anyways in San Francisco. And I would, in between my job, you know, I'd take the bus home from downtown. Uh, San Francisco, uh, get to, and then I would, uh, and then I take a shower and and head out to the club on the bus, and somewhere along the way I would stop at a market and get um, junk food, mm-hmm. and I would sit at a table near the stage or maybe in the back I guess so that so that I could be ready to jump on stage when the when the you know next comic was mm-hmm. done. And oftentimes I still had like a big bite of Pop-Tart in my mouth or, you know, or Hostess apple pie. Um, And then sometimes I would read from the package of the Pop-Tarts or I would offer everybody some. And so there was this sort of group feeling Mm -hmm. to what was happening. In fact... Sometimes the comic would be off stage already, and the whole crowd would turn around and go, "Paula, say, oh, oh, sorry, oh, sorry, just eating this last bite of sugar wafer. Sorry."
3: Yeah, and that's how the Pop Tart joke started. Yes, is-
2: that is. That is exactly how that
3: happened. So the it's one thing to do talk to the crowd when you're hosting an open mic night. It's another thing to be like, "Oh, I'm filming something. I'm gonna want to talk to the crowd, like." <laughs> The idea of like, oh, I'm playing clubs. I'm going to to talk to the crowd. Then I'm going to talk to theaters. I'm going to talk to the crowd. Like, what how, were there? Was there pushback from the industry being like, well, you can't do crowd work. You're doing a special. The special should be you just doing your material. Like, how did yes. you, what was that like? What was you being like, this is essential? What were those conversations like? Why was it important to you?
2: It is the heart of what I do. And I used to have these very powerful management company they 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 were the managers of Robin Williams and David Letterman and Dick Cavett and the, the Martin Mull and Billy Crystal and uh, on and on and stand up comedy used to be a big part of HBO yeah and so a lot of those performers were a big part of early HBO and uh so my managers had a very strong relationship with HBO as a result. So, uh, you know, I had done the you know Young Comedian special, and I had done the, the they my managers produced an HBO show called Women of the Night, and and I did that, and then I had done I think like some sort of half hour maybe for HBO yeah. something like that I can't remember anymore. But there was this sort of little ladder that one went on, and my managers tell me. That uh, they've they've gotten me a, a you know an hour special with HBO and by the way I was so stupid back then when I when I look back I'm like you know sometimes when you're in the middle of something you really don't see what the thing is mm-hmm. um, so you, you need to be you know up high from it to really recognize what it is so uh, I uh, I didn't. I didn't feel like I had the world by the tail by, by any, by any stretch. And yet looking back, I kind of did. But anyway, so they tell me, so so it was great, terrific, excited to do it. That's wonderful. Thank you. Um, And then they tell me that the HBO people say, I can't talk to the audience. And it is only in the recent part of my life that I, lay down any kind of a marker on anything that I say in the recent part of my life, I will say to somebody, well, no,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I didn't used to, I didn't, I, I just didn't. I was afraid of everything. I just, so I didn't, but this, I said, well, wait a minute. I mean, I actually had, when I was in maybe the junior high, I was, I, I, I'm not like a horse person, but I was at a place where there were horses and there was a pony standing on my foot. And I did nothing about it. I just waited. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't say to somebody, hey, your pony is standing on my foot. I just stood there. Mm -hmm. And I figured eventually the pony would move. (laughs) And it did, and I survived. It was no big deal. But that's the kind of person that I mostly yeah. have been. So in this particular case, I said, "Wait a minute. This is the heart of what I do. Why would they hire me, and then say, 'You can't, yeah, you can't do the thing that you do'? It just doesn't make sense to me." So my managers, who you know, I don't think had ever had marching orders for me saying, "You know, tell them," I said. Uh, but you know they go back in and they you know they argue and they you know they okay all right they said so when we did it was filmed, um the HBO special Cats, Cops and stuff was filmed in San Francisco at uh, at uh, at a place called Bimbos, and um, uh let's see there was a uh, we had a rehearsal, um but I don't rehearse yeah. the material because it's the kiss of death um but the what the rehearsal was composed of is you know for the camera people you know where am i going to come out from that kind of logistical Mm -hmm. stuff but what we did rehearse was um and in fairness to hbo back then i have to say um miking people was a lot harder than than it is now you know now you you know now you, you we wish we couldn't hear all the people that we hear wouldn't that be great um, but back then, it was a lot more challenging. So what they did was they had these mics that were co- hanging down from the ceiling. And, of course, all this stuff costs money, too. That was always yeah. part of it. Um, they had these mics hanging down from the ceiling uh, for, to mic the audience. Uh, because if I talk to an audience member, um, we had, I have yeah. a microphone on me. We need a microphone on them so that the, the people listening on television can hear what they're saying. So they had those... And then they had the guy with what's called a boom mic, which is that big furry yeah, microphone, yeah. right? So the, the the I think we have... Do we have just one boom mic guy or two? I can't remember anymore. But So the rehearsal was we had production assistants who would sit in various chairs, and I would pretend that I was interviewing them. And I would say, you, sir, in the green jacket over here. And the boom mic guy would haul ass over mm-hmm. to where that was... To mic the guy, and then I would have this little exchange, and then the people in the truck would say, "Yes, that worked," or "No, that didn't work." So that way, so this was a, it was a big deal to be allowed to talk to the audience. So now I, it's the you know it's showtime. I go on. It seems like it's going okay. I'm telling my little jokes. Uh, somebody, somebody, I guess, somebody. I started talking to somebody in the audience and same thing the boom guy runs over right and 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 by the way people like the director uh and and the big wigs they sit out in uh they call it the truck but really yeah. it's like a big RV that has all the um All the equipment where they can switch to which camera, Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, you've seen it in like Tootsie and shit, right? All the you know, all that big equipment. All right. So they're out there. They're not near me. They're out in this truck. And uh, so somebody, I'm talking to somebody in the audience and they say they're a lawyer. And when that person says they are a lawyer, when I ask them what they do for a living, a lady over to my Mm -hmm. left, goes like ah like something like that so now i turned from the lawyer i turned to the lady of course the boom guy was all ass over to the lady. said and uh i said well what is it you don't have why don't you like lawyers have you had a bad experience with a lawyer and she says yes but she's very reluctant you know i pushed her and pushed her and pushed her to get her to tell me why she didn't like lawyers and it was well my mother i was something something and i and uh and finally, the woman's I, I said, well, what happened? What? So your mother had a lawyer. Why? Well, there's an accident. Well, what? What was the accident? And she says, "My, I, I'm paraphrasing now, but yeah, she yeah. says, you know, um, she, her mother was in a service station. And what was it? She fell oh. and tore her face off on a lubrack.
3: Yes, that's what it was. And my reaction
2: reaction was totally genuine, which was, ah, because it's such a horrible image. But the other thing is, in my head, I'm thinking, I made these people let me be able to talk to the audience, right? They put all this time and money. They didn't want to do it. I insisted. For the first time in my life, I insisted on something. And they must be in a rage right now. Because (laughs) all I could see was just the whole show just tanking because such a horrible, sad image in a comedy show. Yeah. And so my reaction was just like, Oh, and for some odd reason, you know, it was, uh, it, 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 it was lightning in a bottle. I mean, never in a million years. Right. For some odd reason, the audience thought that was funny. And, uh, to this day, oh, and so big laughs, yeah, big laughs over this woman ripping her face off on a lubrak, and I swear to you, I'm not making this up. To this day, I I will be like in a theater or something, or I'll bump into an audience member somewhere, and they'll say, "Are you going to do the lubrak bit?" <laughs> <laughs> the lubrak bit? I, I don't have a lubrak bit. I, It is not uncommon for audience members to think that I put plants in the crowd. But, A, you know, one would never need to put plants in the crowd because you get people talking and they are just, they're delightful. Uh, But this, this, the idea that this would have been a plant, the Lubrak thing, what kind of a joke is that?
3: It's amazing because, like, that moment is two people who, follow comedy closely. It's a big deal. Nothing like that I like that I know of was really has ever been caught. Like that level of spontaneity It's really hard to film crowds and to film on a special and it's and then you go back to the guy who works at a law firm and it's this this huge piece.
2: Well the truth is, I mean, even when they you say you're gonna do the are you gonna do are you gonna do the Lubric? but I mean the truth is I, I hate to say this because I would like to take all sorts of credit for being a A very clever individual with, you know, with a lightning fast brain. That would be great. But the truth is, I didn't say anything all that funny. I just had a genuine reaction that that the audience didn't even really know why I had that reaction. I mean, part of it was Mm. me on stage realizing that a really sad, awful thing just got said. And whose fault is it but mine? Mm -hmm. Because she didn't want to tell me and I made her tell me. Um, so that was part of my reaction. but part of my reaction was just like, "They are gonna kill me! HBO is gonna be so mad!" Uh, so, but, but I didn't have a funny response. I, I just went, "Ah!"
3: <laughs> and we'll be right back for more Paula Poundstone.
0: Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from Zell. The recruiter said all I needed to do was send $500 to cover mandatory safety training, and the job was mine.
1: In a world where financial crimes are
0: more and more sophisticated, there's a team that's got your back.
1: Yeehaw! Come in, Safe Squad, we got a 10-3.
3: Copy that, dispatch. We're on it. Hop in, Skip. We got a phony recruiter. Safe Squad. The crime drama everyone is talking about. I know it's only my first day, but that sounds like a pretty cut-and-dry job scam. Strap in, rookie. These days, criminals can even make it look like it's your bank calling. But that's where we come in. My what? It's my savings
1: account. Compromised? No, I won't hold.
3: No, I didn't authorize a $12,000 withdrawal. That's my life savings. Why don't you come with me? I'll show you how to report to the FTC. What payment platform did you use? Let's contact them, too.
1: Don't miss the TV event of the season,
0: Safe Squad. Hey, Ace.
1: Yeah, kid.
0: You're right. That was one hell of a first day. Learn how you can spot the signs of a scam so you don't have to call the Safe Squad by visiting www.vox.com slash SafeSquadHQ.
3: Remember, never send money online to people you don't already know and trust. back with paula poundstone so i've talked to comedians about it which is part of the job of the comedian is to say funny things but anyone could hypothetically say funny things with their friends but it's creating an atmosphere where comedy can happen and what you do did in this show and what you continue to do with your shows is create a space where for whatever reason everyone feels like they could talk even though like clearly you were talking to one person this person over there is talking. And you're listening for that. Like, what is the energy you're trying to create? And do you have any sense of how you do it?
2: No. I, <laughs> I, I want... I love your description, though. Um Thank you. I want the room to feel as much as possible like the Ross's basement. Mm-hmm. The Rosses were my next-door neighbors when I was growing up in a, in a small town in Massachusetts. And uh mrs ross who was really a wonderful woman um she went partially deaf w- when we were kids uh and you know hearing aids weren't what they are now and it's the good news and the bad news the good news is she could turn that hearing aid off or just take them out altogether and we could be as loud obnoxious as we wanted whereas in my mother's house uh she 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 said she had a headache um but it was like throughout my lifetime
1: Mm
2: -hmm. it was one headache that was just always there and and maybe that was true i have no idea but so in our house you couldn't make noise we would fight with each other and we would try to keep it like as low a volume as possible because we knew if we raised our voices in the fight that you know we were really going to be in big trouble so uh so at the Ross's house, and it was also just, it was the fun house. It just mm-hmm. was, whether, whether Mrs. Ross could hear or not, it was the fun house. And we would go down in their basement and they had, they had put on an addition at one point, And so there was a, a part of the basement that was really undeveloped. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was no lights in there. Uh, and we would, you know, it was part of our hide and seek place and, we would just have, I, 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 I can't even measure how much time went by when we were there. Time was gone. Like when somebody would come down and say, "Like, oh, it's dinner time now," you, you know, you know, did, did you, probably You have to go to your house. What? I, I would just be like, "Really? What? Huh?" Just there was no, mm. there was no time, and we laughed harder. I mean, as a comic, I will never say anything as funny as the shit that got said in the ross's basement we just laughed and laughed and laughed and so my goal and a lot of it was stuff you couldn't retell yeah. if you tried later to explain to somebody what was so funny uh uh you couldn't because you really had to be there uh you had to know the players very well so my goal as a comic is to recreate mm. the 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 ross's basement as much as i can not as loud i suppose um and it's funny because Sometimes well I love I love working theaters. Yeah. It's it's a real different vibe than I do work a handful of clubs still, but they're music clubs. Um and and I work them because, because I love the audiences there. Yeah. Um but there's a big difference between someone, you know, quote unquote heckling or or interrupting than than what I have going on. And sometimes, you know, when you try to like explain it to the, I mean, generally speaking, it's not an issue, but every now and then, you know, you have to, they'll be like, well, you know, we'll keep people quiet. No, I don't want you to keep people quiet. Mm -hmm. Um, I want, you know, if somebody was being an asshole, that's one thing. I don't even very much react to that um, because, well, A, it's not generally a problem, but B, I've been an asshole before. (laughs) I know, you know, from from the location of the glass house that I look out from, mm-hmm. it's very hard to find somebody else a bigger asshole than I can be.
3: So you, you you you'll sometimes describe these things as biographies or little biographies of these audience members, which I think is a very charming way of putting. It. What what does that look like for you? What type of story you're trying to get out of people? Um, you know, in, opposed to. It just sort of never heard people call what you do biographies, you know. And, and and I guess also you often start with what are the traditional questions? Where are you from? And what do you do for a living? Which is, which are the entry. What is it about that way in that gets to these stories? You know, what is it? How can you tell a story good? Like, what is the instinct that you're looking for?
2: You know, what I love about talking to you is that you seem to believe. <laughs> that I'm a lot more deliberative and clever than I actually am, and I'm very flattered by that. Sure. Um. I I, I, I mean, where are you from? What do you do for a living? Is such an easy, you know? It's like a. it's, it's like, a, it's it's just such an easy way in. Mm. Who are you with tonight? That's that's sometimes I do that. Um, couple times recently I've made the mistake of saying is this your wife like what a dumb shit I am. It's a stupid question. It's a stupid question. Yeah. It's just who are you with tonight, right? Yeah. Then other you know it's like no, it's my day. and I'm like oh geez, now I'm like pushing them. Now they feel like oh should we be married? Like oh yeah, yeah. man. I say stuff that shouldn't I and I don't learn I don't learn from my mistakes. That's one of the Hallmarks of being Paula Poundstone. Mm -hmm. I do not learn from my (laughs) mistakes. You know, the Lakota Indians uh, would not push their children. You know, this is like in the tents and stuff. They would not push their children away from the fire because the feeling was, the belief was, that the kids would get burnt, right? And then the kid wouldn't go near the fire anymore. It, it was a lesson that taught itself um if I had grown up a lakota Indian back then i would have been a i would have been a charcoal briquette i I just don't learn from my mistakes because I made that is that your wife mistake mm-hmm. two weeks in a row recently uh but generally these things are easy uh they're just they're just easy yeah. ways into into the conversation and um And it's funny, the people that I tend to be attracted to, I mean, sometimes I don't always talk to front row people, although I do sometimes because it's easy to see. Yeah. Um, But, I, I, you know, I I talk to people way back in the crowd a lot of times. Um, But one of the things that does attract me to talk to someone is when they look like they just hate me. And a lot of times, in my head, what I'm thinking, and I'm trying to do something else, and I'm thinking, but mm-hmm. in my head, by God, I have that guy with his arms crossed uh, that hasn't cracked a smile in an hour. He is like, everywhere I look, I can see that guy, no matter what. And I don't even have peripheral vision. Um, I, I, I always, and sometimes I do ask them, I go, l- l- let me ask you something. Did you... And, your, you know, your, your girlfriend or your wife, did you have an agreement that if she sat through a football game, you would come to this? <laughs> and what's interesting is once you get those people talking, a lot of times my perception was not correct at all. And if one could learn a life's lesson, which I can't, but if one could, that's really a big one, yeah. you know, which is especially now with masks, Right. We don't have, I mean, I I, we, I walk around with a mask on and I tr- I'm like a silent movie star trying to emote with my eyes because I want people to know mm-hmm. that I'm not glowering at them and I'm not afraid of them and I don't dislike them. Um, and, you know, and I'm relatively happy, uh, as happy as one can be in the current mm-hmm. circumstances. Sure. Uh, but, yeah, a lot of times one's guess about what somebody else is thinking or feeling couldn't be
3: more wrong. Yeah. You sometimes people in interviews have called it crowd work and you don't like when they call it that.
2: <laughs> I hate that. What, what uh yeah, it was my friend uh Jimmy Pardo. Uh uh, uh, uh he we we talking to me once and he said something to me about crowd work. I, I I just what? What is that? It's such a weird phrase.
3: You Why? Know? what what is it you don't like about it? I
2: don't know. It just sounds so antiseptic somehow. It just sounds like you know, it sounds like something that you get a check for. Uh I mean a check like not a not a, a money exchange, but a check mark. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, they had excellent you know, they were uh they were uh they had excellent crowd work and their uh you know, their punch lines were effective. Uh their crowd work was excellent. Uh their uh presentation was very fine. I it just sounds gross to me.
1: Yeah.
2: I mean that to me is like saying, um, I mean, I I talk a lot, for better or worse. I talk a lot. I wish I didn't, but I do. And when I am, I, 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 in any situation, I I talk to people. It's it's called a conversation yeah. conversation. It's weird not to be able to say that word. Um, but so the idea that it's been like distilled. To the phrase "crowd work." Was, so, if you're walking down the street and you see your neighbor, is that neighbor work? <laughs> did you you say, "Hey, how you doing? Good to see." You, you know, so I saw my neighbor when I was taking out the uh, the the, uh, the the cat waste in a yeah in a plastic bag today, and uh, I just waved. I I I think I said hi, but I I didn't sit around talking. to him. Said, hi, uh, it was neighbor work. I did some neighbor work.
3: I I. Are these conversations? They're you know they are conversations. Are they conversations that you would have off? Are they conversations you have off stage? If you're on a plane, are you going to have a? Oh, what do you do for a living? Like, are you a person who extends this? And and why so or why not?
2: Um, I am not a big airplane talker. Uh, but I do occasionally talk to the person beside me. Uh, I say hello when someone mm-hmm. sits down. I say good morning, uh, because it's usually. Really early in the morning, I say if i if I am lucky enough to have the window seat, which is my preference, I say to the person unlucky enough to have the middle seat, I say, and often now, of course, with a mask over my face and emoting with my eyes, I say, I firmly believe that the person in the middle seat gets the armrest hmm. And I say, so if I fall asleep or I forget that rule, you have my permission to shove me off. And a lot of times, because people are so unused to being spoken to, they just look at me in horror. <laughs> uh, but I, sometimes I do. In fact, one of my first trips uh, in the midst of the pandemic, my one of my first, uh, you know, after the after the stay at home order on my way to work i had this delightful young man beside me and it was so it was so great to talk to him just for a yeah. couple minutes he was a he was a guy who drove t- t- cars across the country for people that was his job and uh and i it was just so life affirming to talk to him even for a few seconds so and I did I guess yeah. say what do you do for I usually my on the plane I usually say are you going home or are you going to work mm-hmm. and then seconds later I fall asleep so people don't <laughs> you know and I know people are very critical of people who talk to someone on a plane and so I'm aware of that um maybe that's why I'm always totally exhausted when I go to the airplane so that I can corral myself from talking to people
3: so it, it is it is you on stage heightened or not it is an extension of who you are off stage it is and and a time where people you unlike the airplane where some people don't want to be talked to they're all paying for you to talk to them so you think it's probably yeah
2: yeah so i already have that right i already have that permission yeah although some people don't want you to talk to them individually in the crowd and i um i don't know if i'm respectful of that or not maybe i'm not it's, oh, um, yeah, they it's don't, they don't usually say so they don't usually say, you know, they'll say like, oh, or, or I'll start to talk to somebody and then the person they're with will start to laugh. And I say, what? what, what? And they go, oh, you know, he didn't want to sit here because he knew you would talk to him." you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I just plow in at that point. Um, or when somebody says, oh, he wouldn't sit, somebody in the back I'm talking to, he wouldn't sit up front cause he, he thought you'd talk to him. And I go, yeah, it doesn't matter.
1: Um, um, but yeah,
2: yeah, you have you have some amount of permission just by virtue of their being there.
3: So you you sometimes call you know you you said it's your only relationship is to the audience. You call your audience your best friend, which I find really touching. What does that mean to you?
2: Well, it could mean a couple things. One yeah. thing is it's that I'm a really lousy friend. Mm-hmm. That could mean the first um, uh, I don't I don't do well in. In regular relationships, um, you know, I tell them things. Um, I tell them things about my life, and, gosh, one of the you know one of the best uh, feelings that one can have, I for me anyways as a performer, is that that feeling that you've shared something that that people feel really people feel really isolated Mm -hmm. um because they thought they were the only one and i sort of push for that sometimes because i've had the i've had the reverse experience which is where i thought i was the only one and then i sort of blurted something out on stage and everybody laughed and i realized oh my gosh They weren't laughing because like, what a weird thing. They were laughing because, oh my God, I have that. And so much of what goes unsaid uh, uh, among all of us, you know, I was raised in a, as I said, a small town in Massachusetts. um, And I always thought that the challenges that we were having in our house were entirely different. I mean, the Rosses were a bad example because they—they they really did. There really was something charmed about a lot of their experiences with one another, um, but you know, but I—I I just always thought that what was that what we were going through was somehow unique, and it wasn't stuff that you would tell other people because mm. you felt like a big loser, and and uh, as it turns out. So many things, I would venture to say almost everything that we experience, given how many people there are in the world and who have gone before us, um, there is no unique. Yeah. Y- you know, there, 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 there's nothing I can say about my life that somebody else, you know, oh, yeah, you know, you know, raise your hand if you, oh, yeah, I had that. um, And so... In that way, I mean, especially, for example, in raising my children, which is such a lonely pursuit mm. in so many ways. Um, and I'm a single mom and maybe that made it more so in some ways, I guess. But I, I will take the I'll take the positives from that uh, any day uh, over the over the negatives of, of being in a partnership and. Um, but there were times where I just felt like, oh my gosh, this doesn't happen to anybody else. Yeah. And uh and it turns out no, really, it happens to tons of people. It's just regular. It's not particularly, you know, but when you're going through it, it does feel like a slog. Like, you know, like you know, everybody else's kid has their homework done. You, you know, it's my kid, you know, my kid just regularly lies to me about what's You know, and then they say to you, like the school says, I go, yeah, I really don't know what the homework is. And so it's hard for me to make sure he's doing it. Mm -hmm. Well, it's on our website. Check the teacher's website. Okay, well, it's March and it still says something about back to school night on the teacher's website. I'm not sure she's updating it, Uh, you know, and it turns out, yeah, we weren't the only ones. Just feels like it. So that's part of the reason the audience
3: is my best friend.
2: Plus, don't you want to have a great time with your best friend?
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And
2: I have a great time with the audience.
3: One one thing when I heard you say that, I thought, you know, in in 2001, you had a, a very public, very difficult bit of legal trouble that you've talked about, that you talked about on stage, you talked about in your book. And I read a lot of articles that came out right after and the sort of worry about doing shows. And, and I imagine, or well, I guess let me ask, what, what was it like to have your audience come back, to have them support you so thoroughly? after such a difficult time. Was that part of what made the bond feel so strong, do you feel?
2: Absolutely. Um, Hold it, I have to open a soda. Sure.
3: Done. Um,
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, The first show I did was in Santa Cruz. Uh, after, I was in rehab for six months. Um, And, uh, um, yeah, I was in, uh, the first show was in Santa Cruz and I think it was sold out. And and by the way, that may in part have been, (laughs) you you know, sort of curiosity on the part of a lot of people. Um, And it was a, it was a really great, wonderful night and uh and i am eternally grateful to that crowd i can't say as that everywhere i worked after that was the same Mm. um you know it took a it took a long time to to sort of build up an audience uh you know uh yeah what everything wasn't a stroll in the park by any by any stretch but you know You know, when you screw up really badly, and I did, um, you know, and there was always the possibility that I would simply have to do another kind of a job, Mm. and I was well aware of that, Um, but uh, I wanted to make sure that I was taking responsibility for the fact that I screwed up really badly. I wanted to, um, do better. And I wanted to, uh, you know, to some degree that exchange with an audience for me is very intimate. So I told, I don't talk about that stuff anymore because it's not really, because it's, it's not, because it's not part of my daily life, yeah, yeah. but back then it was. And what I tend to talk to the audience about is stuff that's part of my daily life. You know, um, I don't, I, every now and then I'll tell a story now about raising my children, for example, but my children are all young adults now. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't, I don't feel that, you know, I want to, uh, what's the word, you know, keep their privacy. I don't want to tell stories about them as adults. um, except for one Mm -hmm. uh but uh and so yeah and so i don't you know every now and then i'll tell a story from like when they were little or something um sometimes people tell me they miss the stories of them growing up and i think that's because again those themes are so universal you know one time when my son was little he um i i don't know he just it just dawned on him one day that i might talk about him on stage and uh he asked me, and boy, I was just busted. And I said, "Yeah, I do." And uh, I said, "But here's the thing: for one thing, uh, is I I do exaggerate sometimes, although not that much." Um, and I said, "But the other thing is, people wouldn't find it funny if it wasn't common mm. to everybody, you know." So I go, "It's and it's really more about me." struggling to parent than it is about, you know, you being a kid. By the way, the early Leave it to Beavers, um, which were the really, really good ones, the early Leave it to Beavers were about ward parenting. Mm. Um, He used to do a monologue in the beginning of the show. And then a little you know, thing at the end, a little another one at the end, talking about parenting. They weren't, it was a stupid name of a show, Leave it to Beaver. They were never, it was never about Beaver. It was about Ward and his attempts at parenting. Uh, so I'm trying to, I have spent a lifetime trying to recreate Leave it to Beaver on stage. Yeah,
3: seems like it. Um, considering how close you are to your audience what was it like not being able to perform and and now and sort of as we come out of it what's it like being back with them um
2: it's great to be back with them uh it's just great to be back with them i in fact i'd rather instead of telling jokes i i i would love to just stand on stage and look at them uh for 2 hours um uh, <laughs> it's just so nice to have them, and I—I I, I feel like we've all—you you, you, know—it's all, like it's like we're all coming out of hiding. There's a there's a Munchkin feeling to it sometimes, uh, and and people are sort of not sure what foot to start on, and and uh, you know whatever social ills we had before have grown. Um, I, I, I I think I went through several phases. And we'll go through several phases again, by the way, because there's no way in hell we don't end up shut down again um, because of the motherfucking anti-vaxxers
1: mm-hmm.
2: There, you know, what? Uh, because of the raging mental health problems in our country. Um, so. At first, I thought it was only going to be a couple weeks. I don't know because 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 my science brain wasn't really working um i did i thought you know also because of the reaction of my managers and my agents so the first i had three nights one night was in aspen one night was in new jersey and the third night with it was in northampton uh massachusetts and it was early in the morning and i'm being driven to the airport to um to go to aspen and i had to fly in a night early because sometimes it's hard to get to aspen so um uh, so there we are in the car going to Aspen, you know, going to the airport to go to Aspen. And the phone rings and it's my manager. And she says, uh, uh Northampton's, uh, they're it's can't, it's canceled. They're, they're going to postpone it. We'll do another time because of, because of the virus. I said, oh, oh, okay. And then, uh, you know, I think now we're at the airport and I'm at the airport and I get another call. Yeah. New Jersey's can't, canceled. Yeah. So how about Aspen? No, no, no. They're not canceled. Said, okay. All right. So then I fly to Aspen. And you know, all day long on the phone with you know, maybe they will, maybe they won't. Hi, hide hi. It wasn't until noon on the day of the, on the day of the show that I get the call. They, oh yeah, ask was canceled. But what they what they were saying to me with each of these phone calls is, it's going to be moved. That was March. That was mid March. They're going to move it to May. You know, they're going to move it to you know third week in May. You know, so okay, all right, didn't sound that bad. I, I can you know not good, but. Not that bad, right? Mm-hmm. And then I started to realize, you know, I think this is going to go on longer than that. So, but when I thought it was only going to be a few weeks, my immediate concern was, you know, my, I I wanted to make comedy videos so that, to help get people through. Mm. You you know, just to uh, to lower people's anxiety, to give people a chance to laugh because, you know, it's all so hellacious. So I started making these comedy videos, um, not stand up, but uh, just, you know, shit in my house. I would do uh, um, I had a longstanding character, uh, um, Rhonda. uh, She does a show called Cooking with Rhonda. And uh, so I did, you know, I did one or two more Rhondas. I did a I I did a character Miss Nancy who was teaching online and she's a, mm-hmm. a, a teacher from uh, in Massachusetts and uh and I I put, you know I put I forget if I did other ones I can't remember anymore but I put one out like I don't know every day every other day for a little while which is a lot more work than one might think um and uh I was really driven to you know make sure that you know I was giving people And then as time went by and it occurred to me that it was going to go on a lot longer, then I started thinking, oh, my God, I have no income. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, all those financial planning ads that you see on TV, and there's tons of them, Mm -hmm. not once, not even for a second did I think they were talking to me. So uh, I didn't. I got nothing. I got no fallback. Uh, So then I, you know, then I sort of shifted. And uh, I was making a little, uh, just a silly, goofy, homemade game show that I would do uh, once a week. And actually part of the joy of that while I was doing it, and I would say to people, look, if you enjoyed it, send me a dollar. Uh, um, But part of the joy of doing that also was a chance to talk
4: Mm. um,
2: to the audience about what we were going through. And, uh, you know, I mean as you know, Zoom is just awful. Uh, and, and, and I, and I felt so jealous of musicians, by the way, um, because for musicians, you can sit in your living room or in your kitchen and your dog can run in and out and it's fun and it's homey and you can almost smell the tea brewing. Uh, but you can make a song and, People can listen and, oh, isn't that wonderful? It's intimate music with uh, uh, the news hour on PBS did at least two stories about Mary Chapin Carpenter mm-hmm. doing intimate concerts from her living room. Comics can't do that. I mean, yeah. I could make the Miss Nancy videos and I could make the um, cooking with Rhonda videos, but it's not, but it, people kept asking me like all these charities. Kept coming to me and saying, "Well, will you, will you, will you participate in our online? What do they call? I forget what they call. You know, our online fundraiser." Uh, And they'd say, "Well, you can do stand-up. Oh, just do it in your living room. Like you can't do stand-up from your living room." I find myself, and I wouldn't know Mary Chapin Carpenter if I tripped over her. But I fucking hate her now. I'll tell you that. I just feel jealous. My guess is she's not a person who elicits that reaction from a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, But damn it, with the fucking guitar and the singing and the, oh, it's so intimate. Fuck you, Mary Chapin Carpenter.
3: Well, it seems like for you, stand-up is so defined by being able to interact with people. So the idea that you would just talk to a void is not doing stand-up.
2: Not really. I would argue that it isn't for anybody. I mean, you really do need that response. I mean, look. That's why television, you know, sitcoms use the stupid uh laugh, laugh track too. and shit, you know. I mean, when I was a kid, it never even occurred to me. Like, when people, you know, when the, the Flintstones had a laugh track, it never even occurred to me. <laughs> well, I also thought Fred was real. But, yeah, like, yeah. you know, we are a little bit lemming-ish when it comes to our responses. Which, by the way, is why, I mean, I... I very rarely go to the movie theater because I just, I can't afford the time. Now I can't afford the money, but I certainly can't afford the time. Um But I just have my fingers crossed that the movie theaters survive mm. because that collective experience of watching something, whether it's uh, regardless of the, the, the genre, whether it's, you know, comedy or adventure or, you know, uh, you know, drama that, experience of watching it collectively is so entirely different from what you do watching something at home. And, you know, I think both, both things uh, Mm. are great, uh, but watching something with an audience is such a wonderful experience Um, And, and it's good for the brain. I'm sure
3: of it. And these shows, and so you've the shows you've done back. has it felt, as like you seeing an old friend, like you know, like what has it been? Has it been good?
2: Well, the the various venues, the theaters that I've been in, have handled the um, the precautions differently. Mm -hmm. So I was just in this terrific theater in Livermore, California, and they were so lucky. One of their patrons uh, died at some point in the last year and a half. And and they left them, I think, their house, I think. And so they used the money to install a new ventilation system mm-hmm. in the theater. And so these guys, I mean, that's not going to happen everywhere you go. Um, uh, although theater patrons, if you're not feeling well, you might want to. Might want to take out that old Will and see what you can do for the rest of us. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so they were just extremely, extremely lucky. And they they did their audience was masked, um, but they were also sitting beside each other. And uh, I haven't yet gotten a call that, that you know, that, 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 mm-hmm. that anybody was exposed to. So I think, good. Um, I have been in some venues, lots actually, come to think of it. Where they are, you can sit with your group, maybe that you came with, or the couple that you came with. But they have people spaced out in the theater, which is a heavy lift for a performer, unless you're married, and Carpenter, in which case it doesn't matter. But um, usually, if I went to a theater uh, in uh, in the before time, and it wasn't, you know, wasn't as full as one would like it to be. And so people were just sort of naturally spaced out. Either, you know, someone would go on before me and say to the crowd, hey, everybody, look, there's Mm. these empty seats down front. Come on, everybody, come on. So that we we have this collective energy. And that's so much easier to play to. So now we're reversing that. And look, if it's the best we can do and it keeps people safe, then I am all for it. Um, but it is a heavy lift as yeah. as a performer, you know. You just it's not it's not like waves of laughter coming over the. And then they do this other thing, which is um, a lot of people, and I think this will be with us forever now, which is they'll stream, so people can buy tickets to the theater show that they're now watching. Yeah, you know, and there's a handful of audience members there, but they're now watching from their couch. Uh, and again, if it's the best we can do, then I'm all for it. But you know, very heavy lift for a, Mm -hmm. a, for a comic, you know, like, yeah, you know, come, you know, so as, because we tend to respond to how other people are responding. So now I'm watching streaming uh, from my, I don't even own a couch, but if I did, I'm watching streaming from a couch and you don't feel like the audience in the room is that responsive. And so you're like, well, was that funny? I can't tell. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so uh but again this experience of being together this experience of being able to laugh um this experience of being able to share how we each handled what we've been through i think is invaluable yeah. and any way you can get to it safely is is worth doing <laughs> <laughs>
3: So now it's time for our final segment. It's called the Laughing Round. It's like a lightning round, but um, this is a comedy show, so I call it the Laughing Round. Um, shorter questions, hopefully easy, easier questions. Do you um, do you have a favorite joke? Joke, like a joke, street joke, kids joke, knock knock joke.
2: Okay, I I, I can never think of stuff like that. Um, but I did see a comic strip the other day with uh, a woman. It's All right, so she's applying for, she's she's doing an interview for a job. Got it. And they say to her, what do you, you know, what do you think are your uh, weaknesses? And she said, well, I'm very honest. And they said, you know, one of the guys behind the table says, oh, I, I don't think that's a weakness. And she said, I don't give a shit what you think. <laughs> that works. I thought that was pretty good
3: um is there a joke from another comedian that you wish you could steal or you saw another comedian so like oh i wish i thought of that i wish i could ha- have that in my act uh,
2: you know what i don't watch other comedians because the whole time i'm thinking why didn't i think of that how come i didn't think of that what's the matter with me how come i should have um must been there was a club uh, uh, um I don't know if it's still there or not, but the Ice House in Pasadena, I which in the, in the L.A. area was a great, iconic uh, place. And um, they were having some sort of anniversary. Was it, you know, the 25th or the so? And I'm sitting in the in the green room with uh, Pat Paulson and the great the great comedian Pat Paulson. And uh, uh, he was, you know, with his we were all sitting back there with our notebooks and our pens mm-hmm. trying to figure out what we were going to do. And uh, I said, Pat, you used to do that thing about how you would never want to be president of a country whose national product was gross. And uh, and he laughed and he goes, I did that? And I said, yeah, yeah. And he goes, well, that's very funny. <laughs> so I think he went out and did it that night. Um, you know, now that he's dead, I always wished he had left it to me.
3: <laughs> uh, well, I think you probably could do it at this point.
2: I don't know. Okay. So, I, I, you know, I... Every now and then, I tell a joke that a friend of mine, uh, in fact, I actually helped him with s- s- mm-hmm. some of his writing. Oh, that's actually a great writing story. Okay, so there was a comic named Jim Samuels. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and uh, he's a wonderful man and a terrific comic. And um he he had been around, like, longer than me, you know? So we were working together in Sacramento at a club. And he says to me, when we're in the, uh, you know, comedy condo together, mm-hmm. he says that he has this system of writing that he does, which is that um, we each for, it was like for 15 minutes or five minutes, whatever, take out our notebooks. And as I was telling you, I have things that are sort of just mm-hmm. inklings. They're yeah. they're not developed in any way. He says we share that with, with, like Jim would share his with me, and I would give him my ideas for his piece. Mm -hmm. And whatever we come up with in that 15 minutes belongs to Jim because they were his original ideas. Uh, Terrific, right? So we do this for like 15 minutes. minutes. I remember he had a thing about borrowing somebody's car, like borrowing a friend's car. And they always say, oh, you have to jiggle the key. Or, you know, and so so I was like, well, you could say like, oh, you have to hold the glove compartment door shut. You you know, all the things (laughs) when your friend's Mm -hmm. car doesn't work very well. So then he says, okay, so, you know, great, great, terrific. Now he says, okay, let's, you know, let's look at yours. And I'm so shy about stuff like that. I'm better now than I was then. But I'm so shy about stuff like that. I couldn't even tell him. Mm-hmm. I'd go like, you know, there'd be like a word on the page. i go, well, you know, okay, dead insect. Um, I, I don't know. I I just had a thought about what if somebody you know, had an inset, nothing, I don't know, nothing. I, so uh, my 15 minutes went nowhere.
1: Yeah, yeah. A-
2: and Jim went off and did great with the stuff that I had helped him with. Anyways, occasionally I do leech a thing off him. He's long since deceased. Um, but I always say, before I say it, this was my friend, the great Jim Samuels. Mm, that is
3: great. How did your outfits, especially the, the of the old specials, your the way you dressed... I feel is truly a legendary look. When people draw comedian, one the drawing is you like your clothes. How did you land on your that style, your sort of signature sort of the 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 sort of big blazer and you had the tie but everything's all these different colors? How did you land on all of that?
2: Um well, I think it, there was an evolution. <laughs> um uh you know, on that HBO no. On the Harvard special, I think, I had this big blue pinstripe suit. Yeah. It was even – one of the things I liked about that suit um, was that it had, like, foam inside it. And so it really kept its shape. So it's this big, huge, beautiful suit that a wardrobe person – you know, they hired, like, a wardrobe person. And the wardrobe person, you know, brought it to me, like, you know, what do you think about this? And I was like, I love that. Um, and they had gotten it at a flea market. Uh, then later, uh, I was making a cover for a CD that I did and I hired a, um, a wardrobe person to help me and she was so great. We still work together. She, she is the, She is how I get the suits made now. Got it. Um, It had never occurred to me to have something made before. (laughs) Like that just seems so like, I don't know, rich people for one thing. And in fact, for me, it saved me a lot of money because, you know, I used to have stuff that would hang in my closet that I never wore because I nervously bought it when I was in the store. It still has the tags on it, for heaven's sakes. Um, and and it just, it never really felt right. I was either influenced by the salesperson, I was influenced by just wanting to get the fuck out of there, or I was influenced by somebody that I was with when I was shopping, which is always a mistake. So anyways, we had, we were making, I think it was the uh, I Heart Jokes, um, Paul tells him in Boston mm-hmm. CD. And I just decided to have a, you know, a Minuteman costume on the cover. And... Um, but having had this, you know, history of the big blue suit, I said to this wardrobe person, I said, you know, I think that I would like to wear like a zoot suit. (laughs) And so she said, Oh, you know what? So she gets me, she gets through this. We were at a costume house. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Western, I think it was, which is just huge. I got lost in the hat section once. Um, So she said, okay, you know, so she gets me this zoot suit to try on. And it was like huge. It was big and boxy. I looked like a less debonair wolf from Tex Avery. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it was just like, and I was like, no, no, no. And she said, well, you know, you could, she just sort of explained to me that we could change things on it and make it work for me. And so she did. So she, she ended up, I mean, she wasn't the tailor. But she was the person who, you know, pinned and made adjustments and shit. And, we, um, and then we would go fabric shopping together uh, because that I had to be a part of because no one would choose the shit that I choose.
3: What is it um, about a patterned large suit that screams, I'm on stage, dude, dude, my It's thing. like
2: my uniform. It's so easy now. You know, I used to, you know, I used to stand in front of my closet and labor over, you know, in the old days when I first started... Well, very early on when I started, I I went through a very long phase of wearing um, jeans and cowboy boots on Mm. stage. And it was fun. And I had like a dozen different colors of cowboy boots at one point. Um, And I and I I loved that. Uh, But because I was in a club for five nights in a row, I also felt the need to wear a different outfit. every. I was lugging around a suitcase with like fucking five pairs of. uh, of cowboy boots and and now I pick one suit I go out with that one suit I might wear that suit for the whole goddamn year (laughs) I just one suit every now and then I'll hear from my agent like you know I'll go to do a television show or something and they'll say could she change the suit she's wearing I, I I i I don't know, I like it that it's I like it that it feels like a uniform, yeah, because you know, and people ask me questions about this all the time, and I think they ask a lot of comics this question, which is what about when you're not in the mood you know what, what how do you go be funny, how do you go you know nightly when you got all sorts of shit going on um and I think having this sort of uniform... Mm. Because you're absolutely right. Sometimes you are not in the mood. Um, but I have a certain ritual, including including putting my folder in my blue Nashville library bag that I carry, including including putting on my lipstick, including, you know, but putting on this uniform. And so by the time I hit the stage... I'm not thinking about all those other things. I'm just there. I do my job. I'm I'm lucky enough to have a job that I love, uh, that's joyous, that no matter what bad mood I was in before I hit the stage, it is eliminated literally the second I get there.
3: Yeah, it's like, it's somewhere between like a costume, like you're about to play Paula Poundstone on stage, time to put on Paula Poundstones, and like a superhero's like uniform of like, you know, Clark Kent doesn't feel like Superman until he dresses like Superman.
2: Where's my super suit? <laughs> exactly. This is my very bad Samuel Jackson impression.
3: Um, do you have a, a short story of an experience with a legendary comedian living or dead that you'd like to share?
2: She's not a stand-up comedian. So that's fine. So a thousand years ago, when they used to do that show called Evening at the Improv, I had done it once. And by the way, just as a, as an aside... Those nights hanging out at the Hollywood Improv, and th- and those were my you know some some drinking years, uh, and although I would love to go through, you know, with a sponge and soak up all the alcohol on my end, mm-hmm. um, I, nonetheless, nonetheless, the, the the time of sitting there used to be a big round table in the corner. That on the nights that I was home and I was hardly I, I was only home a couple nights a week back then but on the nights that I was home um this is pre-children uh I would you know you could always find me at that table with my friend Joanne Astro, uh, just laughing and laughing and laughing there was much funnier stuff at that round table than there than there was when you went into the showroom honest to God mm-hmm. um uh but anyway so one night, the round table, you know, Bud Friedman, who was one of the owners of the uh, improv, he, he asked me if I'll do um, Evening at the Improv again. And I was flattered to be asked, but frankly, I didn't feel the need. Um, and so I said, because they used to have a, um, a, a host that was like a celebrity, you know? Yeah, not
3: a stand-up host.
2: Right, right. So I said, I'll do it if I get to choose who <laughs> my host is. So they have this list and, uh, and he agreed to that. And, and, uh, so they have this list and B. Arthur was on the list. So I say, all right, can I do it with B. Arthur? i say, yes, yes, yes. You can do it. So they took what was at that time, like an unused section of that building, uh, at the, at the improv. And they made it into like a dressing room because we didn't have a dressing room at the improv. Um, and we don't have lockers either for people who watch that movie punchline. Um, uh, so they made this dressing room, right? So it's the night of the thing, and I'm, you know, I'm, ba- I'm so excited to meet B. Arthur. Knowing this, the guy who was managing that night, or whatever was producing, or whatever it was, he, he brings her over to me in the in the back, and he, you know, he, you know, B. I'd like you to meet, you know, Paul Ponsel, Paul Ponsel is B. Arthur, and I said, oh, so nice to meet you. I just, you know, I'm a big fan, really, and uh, and uh, so the guy steps away, and she seems very agitated, and uh, and I said, well, you know. If there's anything I can do, um, to you know, to help, and she goes, "Just get me the fuck out of here." (laughs) And it was so, it was so B. Arthur. (laughs) It was so like if you boiled her down, and you just had like the essence of B. Arthur. Okay, so that was when I met her, and. I did this thing that I often do which is I say, "Do you play ping pong?" B. And uh I think she would say like, you know, I have played before but I don't really play. So, well, I have these ping pong parties in my backyard and we would uh, you know, love to have you. So, somewhere I get her mailing address and um I I, I in the day I had like 5 or 6 Ping-pong parties where we choose uh, uh, doubles partners from out of a hat. Uh, No one plays very well. That's part of what's fun about it. And uh, it's just a night of, you know, pizza and candy and Mm ping-pong and really, really fun. So, you know, we always send out far more invitations than we have takers. But uh, so B Arthur was on the guest, you know, on the invitation list for years. And... um, So I would send her out this invitation, and we'd have the party, and she never came. And uh, maybe a week later, two weeks later, a month later, my phone would ring, and she'd say, "Paula," I'd say, "Yes, yeah. Be Arthur, honey. Or did you have your
1: party?" <laughs>
2: and I say, "Yeah, be happy." Yeah, be. We did. It's oh, I'm so sorry I missed it. That's okay, B. I mean, we we were sorry you weren't there, but did you have a good time? We did. It was really fun. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, we'd love to have you sometime. I think you'd have a great. Oh, I would love to. Call. I just do you, I just found the invitation on my <laughs> desk. Do you, and she would say, do you have an assistant? And I would say, I do. She go, I've got to get an assistant. I just I just found the invitation. Literally this conversation. Every, like, so a couple months would go by, we'd have another party. I'd answer the phone, one day, Paula P. Arthur, did you have your party, honey? Yeah, we did the exact same mm-hmm. conversation every single time. No irony at all. Yeah, she yeah. just, she, you know, she wasn't like, you know, oh, I've got to get an assistant. So, um and, you know, we had some, you know, met up once or twice outside of that, right? And that's the end of the, and then, uh, uh, and then, you know, B. Arthur dies because life doesn't go on forever. And in the article that I read um, about her death, it's it said um, that her assistant <laughs> says blah, 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 whatever it was about her death. And I just was like, well, the, <laughs> the good news is... The good news is either that she got an assistant.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: she could also have just gotten a calendar. That sure, could work. Yeah. That could work. But, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Loved her. Just loved her.
3: Yeah. Um, how many cats do you currently have and can you name them all?
2: Well, I have ten. If I didn't name them all, you wouldn't know it. But I can name them all, so I shall. Thank you. I just recently got Two kittens. Because I had eight, and my daughter Allie said, Mom, it's like you don't have any. Um, So I just got these great kittens, Lawson and Nash, um, and then I have Hardy and Theo and Severus and Mrs. Fezziwig and ShamWow and Wednesday and Tonks and, uh uh-oh, um, oh, damn it. There's one missing.
3: Oh, 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 Harrison. Nailed it. Did it? Yep. Uh, uh, and, and last one. Do you have a, a joke or a bit of some sort that you thought was really funny that you tried on stage a variety of times but never worked, but you will like always remember is this is the thing that I find funny. Everyone was wrong on your deathbed. You'll be like, this is the, I'm still right. This was funny. <laughs>
2: Okay, I had I remember the day I thought of this, I was with Gary Shandling and I told him and, and and he had the same feeling I think that the audience had, which is huh? Um so that I so the the joke was that I was driving my car, and I've never been a good driver, by the way, but so I was driving my car and a dog ran out in front of me and I swerved to avoid the dog and, you know, and then I, you know, I, I pull up like on a, you mm-hmm. know, the side of the road and I, you know, who save that dog. And I, and, a, and a kid runs out and uh, she, she's sobbing, crying and she goes onto my windshield and pulls off a moth You killed Flappy. You killed Flappy. I don't know. To me, it's brilliant. Uh, Gary didn't get it. And I think the handful of times I bothered trying it on stage. Uh, it was a little too sophisticated yeah, for the Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. One of the things that was on an HBO special one time was a joke about a Snickers bar commercial. I don't do it anymore for two reasons. One, I can't remember it. And the other is... Um, The commercial's not on anymore. You'd have to explain the whole commercial in order to tell the joke. Why would you do that? So, uh but when I first did that Snickers bar thing, uh I tried it over and over again. Got no real takers. No people just, eh, maybe. I don't know. Not really. And for some odd reason, I remained committed to it. Hmm. And therefore, it was in this HBO special. And... People send me Snickers bars. People, are you going to do the Snickers bars? Oh, poking at you. People say, will you, you know, will you, will you sign an autograph to my, to my wife? And will you just write poking at you, poking at you on it? Like, and yet all those nights that I tried it on stage, I mean, I eventually I did it on stage, even though I I didn't think it was going to get a laugh. I mean, it was just sheer stubbornness. I just felt like, what's the matter with you people poking at you, poking at you? um
3: so you gotta bring back the moth
2: i think i now that i'm talking to you i realized i turned my back you know i what happened to my stick-to-itiveness which is a which is a a a, a quality that my kindergarten teacher cited in me and and i've lost it at at my old age
3: thank you so much That, that the end of the interview thank you so much this has been fantastic i really appreciate
2: it it was so much fun to do thank you very much
3: that's it for another episode of Good One. For more information about Paula's tour dates, head to paulapoundstone.com tour. Stream or download Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow Paula on social media at paulapoundstone. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Camila Salazar. Godin Shrigashin did our theme song. Rate or review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, five stars please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at Podcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture in the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next Thursday. Have a good one.
4: Canva presents
1: stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until
4: the Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m.
1: The office was shocked. But <laughs> that's when we sleep.